Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Sure, Tom. So this is something that's been on my mind for a while. I think probably most uh, compliance into the weed listeners know the broad contours of what the Justice Department has floated as a new policy is that as part of corporate resolutions for misconduct settlements, the chief compliance officer and the CEO would both need to certify that compliance program is reasonably designed to detect and prevent violations of In this episode, Matt and I take a deep dive into the issue of what is a reasonably effective compliance program as required by the new DOJ requirement for CCO certification after the completion of an FCPA enforcement action. But first, a quick message from our sponsor. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again with Matt Kelly for another episode of Compliance Into the... We are going to continue a dialogue we began last week on everything compliance on what was initially one blog post, but it's now two blog posts that Matt has written on what is a reasonable compliance program in the context of the CCO certification put in place by the Department of Justice. So, Matt, with that incredibly long-winded introduction... Welcome back, and maybe you could, uh, for listeners who have not yet heard Everything Compliance, you could walk us through how you got up to at least blog post one. Sure, Tom. So this is something that's been on my mind for a while. I think probably most uh, Compliance Into the Weed listeners know the broad contours of what the Justice Department has floated as a new policy, is that as part of corporate resolutions for misconduct settlements, the chief compliance officer and the CEO would both need to certify that the compliance program is reasonably designed to detect and prevent violations of, and then presumably you'd need to do that, say, if you were under a three-year deferred prosecution agreement, you'd have to certify that annually for three years. My concern was that we don't necessarily have a clear precise definition of what a reasonably designed program would be. And if you go looking around in various pieces of Justice Department guidance, such as the evaluation guidelines for compliance programs, the FCPA resource guide, even the U.S. sentencing guidelines, they talk about having a reasonably designed program quite a bit, but 
they don't actually mention or clarify what a reasonably designed program would do. And I think that's important because if you look at the only place I could easily find where there's a clear definition in a statute, it's in the Securities Exchange Act of 1934, which spells out what you need your system of internal controls to do. And the internal controls have to be reasonably designed or provide reasonable assurance that the transactions will happen according to management wishes and so on and so forth. But the statute then includes a definition of what a reasonable assurance would be, which is sufficient level of detail and degree of assurance as would satisfy prudent officials in the conduct of their own affairs. And this is my point, is that if you are certifying after a resolution, you must therefore have had prior misconduct just happen. That's why you're resolving. But a prudent person looking over their own affairs, once they know they have a specific problem, they do apply a much higher standard to make sure that problem doesn't happen again, because now I know it could happen. Now I really have to watch out for it. So how is that supposed to work in an FCPA context? Are we certifying that it's reasonably designed against the method of a violation? Is it reasonably designed to prevent the fact of a violation? How much higher is this bar? If you already know that your teenager might wreck the car, are you never going to give them the car again? Probably not, but are you going to be very astute in how the teenager might drive from the first wreck onward? Yeah, but how sharp are you going to be watching your child until when? And how do you judge that? So if that's the dynamic in your personal affairs, I think we've got a lot of ambiguity around what that means in a compliance context. And we're asking compliance officers to sign their certify these things. And there's going to be a presumably liability about that. So I think there's a big issue there that we need to clarify and we don't have the clarity. So Matt, you have written two blog posts on this topic. I'm going to ask you to give the story or analogy you used around your children in blog post one to really set up how you expanded that that analogy and the questions or issues presented in blog post two. So what was the situation with the sleepwalking son? So this is, unfortunately, he wasn't even asleep. This is even worse. He was wide awake when he did this. My son, when he was three years old, he figured out how to open the lock on our front door. And one morning while we were all asleep, he opened the door and he went outside and down the street. He didn't run away very far. He came back. But Think about that. I knew there was a risk that my son might run away. So we had what we thought was a good control, a lock on the door. We then had an incident of misconduct. He opened the door. The, he overcame the control, went outside. So what did we have to do right away is we installed a secondary control, which was a deadbolt that is six feet off the ground. He can't reach it. And so once I knew that there was a problem, that the control, the one lock, didn't work, I had to respond, being prudent in my own affairs, I would install a second lock. And that's my point with the FCPA issues, is that once you have this problem, your perspective about what is reasonable changes and it goes way up. Now consider, listeners, if I hadn't put that lock into place, that second lock into place, and he ran outside again, you would immediately say, Matt, what were you thinking? You knew this could happen. You're a terrible parent. We're calling child services or something to that effect. And they probably wouldn't be wrong. On the other hand, and I've since modified this example just a little bit, Tom, since we last talked, 
suppose I put the second lock on the door, but this time my son figured out how to climb out the window and he ran away. So would you still call child services? Because the violation is still the same. He ran outside, but the control failure was very different. He went out the window and he, I don't know, maybe he got a ladder or something like that. He never ceases to amaze me in how he can commit misconduct. So that would be my question. Now, let me replay that same conceptual idea with FCPA violations. So you have an FCPA violation and you're the compliance officer. The violation is that your employees were conspiring with resellers to offer discounts on your product, which of course never actually reach the end customers. You do give the discount, but then the discounts miraculously never reach the customers. They go into a slush fund. That's the bribe. That's very clear. We have seen that sort of FCPA scheme many times over the years. So you sign a deferred prosecution agreement, you plead out, and the compliance officer has to certify that the program is reasonably designed to prevent future violations. Two years later, you have another set of FCPA violations, and this time it's in a different geographic division. But what it is that the G, the local business units are conspiring with intermediaries on sham third-party agreements for consulting services, which are never delivered. They don't do anything other than take the money, and then they give it to their brother-in-law, who's the assistant minister of whatever. Well, did you have a reasonably designed program or not? Because maybe we mean it was reasonably designed to prevent the sort of control failure that happened the first time, which was a failure of documentation. Or is it that just the mere fact of an FCPA violation? Because the second time around, you have a very different control violation. You have poor due diligence on your intermediaries. Now, those are real scenarios. They've happened at different companies. I just mishmashed them together. But that's my question here, is under that kind of fact pattern, which I don't think is a stretch, would you have had a reasonably designed program or not? Because was it reasonably designed to prevent the sort of failure or the control failure, or was it reasonably designed to prevent the violation period? And I don't know what the answer is to that, especially with the lack of a definition of what reasonable is, except for this statutory example from the Exchange Act, prudent official in their own affairs. If I knew that I got jerked around with discounts that were bogus, I'm going to watch against that. But maybe I didn't necessarily think that we'd have sham third parties. Is that reasonable or not? I don't know. And we have no statement from the Justice Department really walking people through these kind of things. But it's a real thing. Compliance officers are going to have to put their signature to these certifications. So that's why I wonder what's going on. So in terms of the initial issue you raised in your first blog post, drawing on my former life as a trial lawyer, I pose that uh, juries every day determine what is reasonable in a negligence case by using the reasonable person standard. And I feel confident that compliance officers reviewing the information available to date by the DOJ and SEC could also make that. But the other thing, after reading your second blog post, particularly one of the comments, and we're going to take a, hopefully a deep dive into some very thoughtful comments you received, is if we start putting down specific requirements or specific items for what is a reasonably designed program, do we set a minimum floor by which no one then exceeds? Are we racing to the bottom? Or as Gwen Hassan, I think, said, have we thrown effectiveness out? Yep. And I just raise those as questions. So maybe if you could 
told us about half of blog posts too, but you really did get some thoughtful comments. Why don't you throw those out and let's see where we can go with those. First, I want to get back to the jury instruction point that you raised, Tom, which I think is a reasonable one, so to speak, to bring up, except A, most FCPA cases never actually get to a jury where we might have a judge giving instructions, or B, even if you want to say, look, most lawyers would know this because they've already heard it when they've been in other litigation cases. If you're a compliance officer who's not a lawyer, which is not an unreasonable proposition, you might not necessarily know that. So I don't know that we could say most people would know reasonable standard when they see it. I don't necessarily know that. Or my idea of what's reasonable might be very different than a different uh, somebody else, especially if we're global companies with multiple jurisdictions in multiple parts of the world, what's reasonable here is not necessarily reasonable there. So I still think we need some sort of better explanation than the self-referential pieces of guidance that the Justice Department puts out. But getting back to a couple of different comments people had to my first post, which I thought were really good. But Gwen did say that basically we're not talking about if we start certifying that it's reasonably designed and then I'm done. I don't have any more liability. That's my concern. If you're a compliance officer with facing personal legal liability, yes, that will be your concern. So suddenly that becomes the thing. Can I get off the hook? I don't have any personal liability. And that's my compliance program being reasonable. That's not the same as saying for the love of the game, I'm going to make this compliance program as effective as possible. I'm going to make it effective enough so that if things go sideways, I don't have my neck in the noose. That's what would happen if you have certifications. The other point that came up I thought was very good was from Adam Balfour, who is the general counsel for compliance for Bridgestone Americas. He said that it would be great if we could just disclose a description of the compliance program in the 10K, such as how many personnel are there? Does the compliance officer report to the board? Who is the compliance officer? What is that person's rank on the org chart? Are they the general counsel or are they separate? I think that would be fine. I don't think that's any revolutionary idea because that is just about identical to what the SEC is proposing that companies disclose for cybersecurity. So why couldn't we do the same for a compliance program other than it's going to make the board actually have to take compliance very seriously at a ongoing structural level. Who is this compliance officer? Are they meeting us on a regular basis? Are they not? That's very much what regulators want to see happen with cybersecurity and the CISO. Why couldn't we have the same for anti-corruption and the compliance officer? I thought that was a very good point. And then the last point that came up that I included in my second blog post came from Eric Young, who's a good friend of yours and mine, Tom, and a longtime compliance thought leader. Eric pointed out that we should remember there's still also the CEO certifying the effectiveness of the compliance program too. And you're joined at the hip or you're handcuffed together like Cool Hand Luke or something like that. And I think that might be interesting because one point that also I haven't raised yet in all of my hypotheticals is you could have FCPA violations happening in a couple of different ways over a couple of years. And the Justice Department's just going to say, you know what? Your control environment clearly is a problem. That's the issue that you guys flubbed up and you certified that it was reasonably designed, but it can't happen with a poor tone or a poor tone at the top and control environment. So that's how we're going to nail you. It doesn't matter what accounting controls did or didn't fail this time around. And I think a CEO certifying 
to a compliance program, they're going to be maybe more attuned to or more on the hook for the control environment and the tone at the top and general approaches to anti-corruption. I don't quite know all of the ways that this might work in favor of or in opposition to compliance officers certifying. There's still clearly a lot of issues that we could explore here. But as finally somebody else said, we're just postulating in the breeze. You, me, the listeners, everybody who's commented, because we are not the Justice Department. And if this is an important thing for the Justice Department, they really should talk more about it. It is an interesting solution to a problem. I haven't quite figured out where it exists, but I'm pretty sure the problem does. The compliance officers aren't thrilled with this. And if the Justice Department thinks this is a good solution to have in FCPA world, they should do a better job underlining exactly what they want us to do and what the problem is here that they're trying to solve. I'm currently studying postmodernist literature, and I heard a great phrase that seems to strike that point exactly. Reality is defined as a process looking for a form, and this may be a problem or a solution looking for a problem. The Let me go back to the reasonable, though, because remember, a jury is almost always not made up of lawyers. It's ordinary citizens, and they're able to come up with whatever reasonable is, and I certainly agree your standard may be different than mine. As part of the beauty of the conscience of a community in a jury room. But for a non-lawyer CCO, I feel like they could also be educated either through their own research or seeking outside guidance and counsel. Let me maybe go in a little bit different direction because I think Eric hinted at something, Eric Young hinted at something that Jonathan Marks has raised a couple of times now. And Eric hinted at with a CEO certification, you could conceivably push that down so that people were certifying up to the CEO. That's very similar to what is required under Sarbanes-Oxley. And Jonathan Marks, since the poll announcement, has advocated that he believes, based upon what he saw in the internal audit world, that SOX or Sarbanes-Oxley elevated the role of internal audit but it because it gave internal audit visibility into the board, but it also required other people in the company who had never done internal audit or internal controls to certify those controls. And of course, those certifications rolled up all over the CFO, who then had to make an overall SOX certification. So perhaps if we wedded that part of Sarbanes-Oxley, which is the certifications, and we had the sub-certifications rolling on controls all the way up to the top, there there could be another level of comfort or another way to demonstrate reasonably a reasonable effectiveness if everyone's sort of on the line or on the hook. Once again, similar to what we saw in Sarbanes-Oxley. So if I wedded Jonathan Mark's thoughts to Eric's comments, maybe maybe there's a model there that we could use going forward. I think that there probably is. I do like that idea. We should be clear that actually you're not required to have sub-certifications. It's just every CEO with a brain is going to realize I'm not certifying this because I don't know where these numbers come from. So we're going to do sub-certifications so I won't go to jail. And that approach very quickly took root in the mid-2000s when SOX first came into force. I do think it would be very good to try to apply it here with anti-corruption and compliance risks, there are going to be some key differences. Number one is that in SOX land, 
you're certifying that the controls work and the financial statements are free of material misstatement. There's no such thing as an immaterial amount of corporate corruption under the FCPA. So, you know, are we certifying that the controls are pretty good and maybe we've got a couple of incidents, maybe they don't, we don't know, it's just a small bribe. Like it, we'd have to work that out, but there are some differences between what a SOC certification would do and sub-certifications versus an anti-corruption or a compliance program certification. I'm not even necessarily sure, Tom, we keep talking about FCPA. There's other violations you could have of your compliance program that would be a big problem. And I, I think it would be more work because there are more ways to have compliance violations as opposed to a SOX violation. So it's going to be a more onerous thing. But if it gets to pushing compliance awareness throughout the whole organization and making people think about it, that's not necessarily a bad thing. And finally, Tom, I have a question that uh, just came to me earlier today that I don't know if you have the answer to this or not. What's the penalty for a compliance officer if it turns out that you were just wrong in your certifications? Like, has anybody actually said what the penalty would be? Are is there going to be liability? Is there going to be fines? Are you going to face a criminal charge? Are there going to be different standards? So again, like my fundamental beef is we have so many questions about this idea that have not yet been answered. And I know that the department likes this strategic ambiguity. I don't think it does any favors for compliance officers and your stress levels. So again and again, I keep coming back to they need to say more about this idea if this is going to be serious. I could actually answer your question quite succinctly. No, we have zero guidance on the potential penalty, yeah. which, of course, is an even more scary answer. The Are we whistling in the dark here? Yeah, absolutely. But I now think back to maybe 07, 08, 09, when you had a different role, and but you were following the FCPA quite intensely. And it turned out that what became the 10 hallmarks of an effective compliance program, the DOJ communicated to us through enforcement actions, through opinion releases, not always in a format that we all understood, but as Mike Volkoff says, the DOJ always signals their intention. And so perhaps they are going to signal their intentions to us in a way perhaps less straightforwardly than you and I might like but we will begin to see the contours of this flesh out as we did 15 years ago around what constitutes an effective compliance program. Potentially, yes. That could take quite a while. You could keep playing this out. So what happens when Assistant AG Polite moves on from office, which eventually he will? Will his successor have a different view on what reasonable is? Will somebody else scrap this whole policy? That's very possible if Republicans ever come back into the White House. But there's just so much subjective judgment that is involved here, which really isn't quite the case with Sarbanes-Oxley certifications. You, either you're off by a material amount of money or you're not, or the outside auditors will give you a material weakness warning in their report or they won't. But there's a whole lot that does exist in the SOX certification realm that doesn't really have a counterpart in compliance certifications like we're talking about yet. And who knows when we're going to see something here, but that is not much comfort to compliance officers worried about signing these things potentially today, potentially next year. This could be your career on the line. And I think that is a big ask for the department and they are not giving much back yet. 
I will throw in, hopefully not gratuitously, but in the Lisa Monaco speech of October 2021, announcing a reformulation of how the DOJ would look at settlement agreements and a few other things, including monitorships, they said they would evaluate prior criminal, corporate criminal actions as a part of the overall settlement process. We've had two recent ones, not in the FCPA context, but in fraud, Biotronic, and the company formerly known as Chrysler, now known as FCA USA. In Biotronics, there was no mention of prior criminal conduct. In the company formerly known as Chrysler, there was mention of prior criminal conduct. Yet there was no indication on either case how that impacted the DOJ's overall assessment. So while we're asking for more guidance, I would maybe throw that in as well. But you're absolutely right. We, we are whistling in the dark here. And until there are some guidelines or parameters or guideposts, I think compliance officers who either are under this obligation or are in the throes of negotiating an FCPA settlement will need to take several deep, hard breaths as to what they agree to. I wholly agree. And FCA USA is a terrible name. I'm going to keep calling them Chrysler. Well done. I can't wait to see what next week brings us, Matt. Thanks, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. I've linked to Matt's blog post on this subject matter in our show notes. I'd like to tell you about a great new show on the Compliance Podcast Network, The Corruption Files, where with my co-host, Mike DeBernardis, partner at Hughes Hubbard, we take a look at some of the most significant FCPA and international anti-corruption enforcement actions over the past 15 years in the modern era of anti-corruption and FCPA enforcement. It's a great retrospective on some of the most significant enforcement actions. So check it out on the Compliance Podcast Network, The Corruption Files. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.